0: There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're here to study uh, the book of Revelation, chapter three. We left off uh, right around verse seven. I think it is. Yeah. Um, Jesus. Well, as you know, Paul wrote letters to churches, two to the church in Corinth, uh, the Colossians. That's a letter to a church. The Thessalonians got two letters from him. There's others. Jesus writes seven letters to seven actual churches in the first century, and we have them recorded here. He dictates them. John writes them down. So the thing is, each of the seven churches has, the letters have something for every church and every person. The reason we know that is it says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So with that in mind, we're almost done. We've got uh, two left, and then we're going to quickly review them. Uh, let's see so we just came through sardis in verse one of chapter three and now we are down to verse seven and we're going to talk about the church in philadelphia these are all churches in what was called then asia minor today it would be or asia the less they would call it asia the less or asia minor is what we would now call western turkey the country of turkey Where they invented Thanksgiving. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so let's read the letter and then we'll talk about it. And this is a unique letter, by the way, because most of the letters, Jesus says, You're doing this pretty well and you're doing this good and you can improve in this, but I have this against you. This is going on. There's bad teaching, there's complacency, whatever the case may be. Philadelphia is the only church that he says nothing negative about. What does that mean for you and me? It means listen up, because this is a really good model church. So I know that you're awake. Say amen. Okay, and those of you on Zoom, say amen or wave. Beautiful. I see your amen sign in Vanuatu. We love that. All right, let's read the letter, and then we'll talk about it. Chapter 3, verse 7. By the way, if you're here and you don't have a Bible, there are some back on the back table there. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. That's the letter. I wanted to read the whole thing. We usually do that. So when you read Philadelphia, obviously it's not Pennsylvania. This is another Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love or city of brotherly love. Of the seven cities that he writes to, this is the youngest city. It's modern day al Sahir in Turkey. Uh, And astoundingly, he has nothing bad to say to this church. The church that follows it, the final church, Laodicea, Jesus has nothing good to say. Yikes. We'll see that in a little while. So uh, let's see, Philadelphia was known for the city in that area that spread Greek language and culture and manners to that whole area. Um, and so there were Christians there in this church. They The city was on one of the greatest highways that led from Europe to the east, from one continent to another. So Let's take it apart. Verse seven, to the angel, that means messenger. It's not a a spirit being, sometimes it is, but when you see messenger, the word means messenger, it means the pastor really, or the head elder of that church. That's who he's writing to. Obviously that head elder, if it was me, I would have to read the letter to the church. Imagine a letter from Jesus to our church. We would take it apart word by word. That's what we're about to do. So this is what he's supposed to write. These are the words of him He's talking about Christ himself, who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Let's take that apart. So, first of all, holy means set apart completely to God. We desire to live holy lives, don't we? Very few people do. We usually live with some of our time and our energy and our minds in the world and their values and some in God's. Hopefully as we grow, we're more and more in God's world and less and less in the world um, and all of its values. So it's the words of him, Jesus, describing himself who's holy. And then the next word is true. There's two words for true in Greek. One is true as opposed to false or untrue. That's pretty obvious. Um, Like a, a lie would be the other word, untrue or something that's truth. But the second word for true is true as opposed to fake. In other words, authentic, the real genuine article. He's telling them that he's the one who's holy and the one who is genuinely God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says that he holds the key to David. Now, this comes from Isaiah 22. A lot of revelation comes from the Old Testament. You're going to see that more and more as we get into chapter 4 all the way for the rest of the book. Isaiah 22, um, there's a weird little story that Hezekiah's servant, uh, Eliakim, gets authority over King David's house and gets the keys so that he's in charge of and has access to everything, all of his treasures. King David is the king of Israel. Jesus is the ultimate king descended from King David. So God has that same key. So there's a Jewishness to this, but it goes beyond Judaism to all of humanity. The guy who holds the key of David, that's what he's calling himself. If you have keys, it means you have authority, right? Um, most of you probably don't have keys to this building, right? If you did, that would mean you have authority to come in and go out, authority to let people in or not, maybe. You have authority that, in the sense that they trust you here enough to give you a key. He's the one who holds the key of David, the king, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. And then he's gonna elaborate on this key because keys speak of what? Doors. And he says, he's the one that opens and no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So the question is, where does this door lead? Well, it's interesting. Jesus says in the gospel of John that he himself is the door. Do you remember? A door is a way in or a way out. Jesus is the door, the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus has the audacity to say it would be audacious if it wasn't true, but it is. So he has the key to David. He has the authority to let people in or not shut people out. The question is, into what? Out from what? And the answer is the kingdom of God. He's the only way. He is the one access point for coming to God, salvation. The reason for that is all the others, Muhammad and Joseph Smith of Mormonism and Buddha and Confucius and Zoroaster and Jim Jones and whoever else you want to mention, Shirley McLean and the New Age Movement, they're all worldly teachers who don't teach God's truth. Jesus teaches God's truth, but beyond that, he's the only one that died for the sins of the world and can now make us able to go into God. So he's the one that opens and nobody can shut. If Jesus opens the door to you to heaven and receives you, no one can get in the way and slam that door. By the same token, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you try to get into heaven, you cannot get in. There's no other way. Except Jesus, because without your sins dealt with, you can't live in heaven with God. He opens what no one can shut, he shuts what no one can open. Total sovereign power. And as it says in most of these letters, verse 8, I know. I know your deeds. Jesus sees not only the deeds, even the motivation um, and the purpose of those deeds. He sees it all. So, uh, a little background before we get any further. Philadelphia was known as Little Athens, like Athens, Greece. It was like a miniature version. Athens had all kinds of temples to pagan gods. They had smaller versions, but a bunch of temples to these pagan gods. Um, they had, and you, those of you that are in California can relate to this, they had lots of earthquakes, lots. To the point that, you'll see in a second that he's writing this so specifically to them. Listen, there were so many earthquakes that people constantly, the earth is shaking. You'd see everybody running out of town to get out in the open away from the buildings, big, tall pillars, temples, other buildings. When the earthquake had stopped and the earth stops moving, you'd see everybody coming back. So there's a lot of going and coming back in that uh, city. He's, saying to them, I know about your going and coming. You'll see where he ties that in in a second. Um, So he says, I know your deeds. He sees them. He has judged them. You'll see that he's judging them very, very well. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I'm in verse 8. I know that you have little strength or a little power, some translations have, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Okay, so we're going back to the guy with the keys, remember? He is the door. He has set before them an open door, okay? Some take this to mean, and it might mean all of these things. Some take it to mean that the open door is, because they are getting an A plus on their grade here, he's saying, you're saved. I have set before you an open door to heaven. Both you will go there when you die, or you will go there when the rapture happens or the second coming, but also open door means communication, okay? The following church after this one, Laodicea, there's a door, and what happens with the door is shocking. We'll get to that later. I know your deeds I've placed before you an open door. Nobody can shut it. Okay, so that is one of the opinions about the open door. Keep in mind, we're going to learn that the Jews in that area were very powerful and had not only kicked the Christians out of the synagogue, but were um, persecuting them. Okay, so they these christians a small church with very little strength or power small group maybe they're struggling financially they had been kicked out of a door the synagogue kicked out of judaism okay we'll get to that in a second but he's saying when one door closed i'm telling you people you've got another one open the one that matters the one to me the one to heaven the one to god itself himself so I've set before them an open door, but there's another possibility as there often is in um, this book. Turn to first Corinthians 16, nine. So from revelation, take a left and you know, you're going to go about 12 or 14, 15, maybe 20 books. Even if you, if you're not a page turner, that's okay. First Corinthians 16. I just want to show you a couple places where this phrase occurs. And and before we do it, May I say, this is a great way to exegete, or that's a fancy word. It just means to interpret what the Bible is saying. What do you mean, Joe? I mean this. When you see a phrase or a word, you can do a word or phrase study and find, where else does that phrase occur? Almost always, it's very indicative of what is being meant. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9 but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Paul's talking because that's verse eight because a great door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many who oppose me. There are many people who think this open door, not to exclude heaven because it's certainly true because they're definitely saved. It may mean, and it does mean in the Bible quite a few times, a door of opportunity. You may have been praying for your neighbor for years, And they don't want to hear Jesus, Bible, God, church, nothing. And then all of a sudden, God opens a door and the person wants to talk about that kind of stuff. Or just a complete stranger makes a mistake and comes down your driveway. You end up talking to them and witnessing to them. You don't see a literal door. But what happened is God opened a door of opportunity to witness. Usually, they're not open forever. There's a limited time and we have to, in faith, recognize, wait a minute, there's a reason God put this guy in my life. I need to witness to him or her, whoever, right now. So some think that the door is open for them in that area to be evangelists to the other six churches and the area surrounding them. A door has been opened uh, in terms of uh, influence and witnessing. Second Corinthians 2.12 has the same phrase. So does Colossians four three. We won't go there, but so you got to go through that door in faith. They had spread the Greek culture. He's saying the door's open now. Go spread the gospel. The mistake that we sometimes make is we go out with guns blazing, anxious to spread the gospel, and God hasn't sent us yet. Or God hasn't prepared the hearts where he's sending us. My wife and I, my whole family, we have this little saying, and it is called a divine interruption. And that is, we're going to go do something, go to the store, we're going to go to the beach, whatever. And then something happens that our plans change, and we end up meeting someone. We look at it as, well, it's a divine interruption. I guess we're supposed to talk to this person, befriend them, find a way to share the gospel with them. Okay, uh, let's keep rolling. Um so God, as he opens doors, draws people, softens hearts, prepares them, gets them ready. Um, let's keep rolling. Go back to verse, uh, back to Revelation 3 um, and verse 8. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Now, this is a church that means that they are humble, that they have very little strength. May I say that's the best place to be you would think I'm going to say, oh no, you want a church that is very strong and self-confident in their strength. Wrong. We're going to talk a lot about this phrase. We won't go to it now, but in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the rich in spirit, poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Isn't that an interesting thing? Why would they be blessed? Because they know We have very little strength spiritually. We have very little on our own. We need a savior. That's the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we'll talk more about that later. I know you have a little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. There was great temptation in a pagan society with temples to all these gods all over the place with those big, tall pillars to bend and worship those pagan gods. Maybe they would excuse it Saying, we know they're not really gods. We're just doing it to fit in as a witness. You're worshiping pagan gods, not a good idea. So these people have not denied his name. They have kept his word to their detriment. It's been hard for them. They're being persecuted. So they're greatly rewarded for this. The lesson for us is in our society, there's great pressure to keep quiet about your Christianity. Don't mention it in schools. Don't mention it in the marketplace. You can get banned on Facebook for saying too much Jesus stuff. In any case, you haven't denied my name. You've kept my word. That means kept it. They understood it and they lived it and they didn't forget it. That involves remembering too, doesn't it? So uh let's talk about oh let's go to second corinthians 12 for a second come to think of it so anyway i'm still in first corinthians second corinthians 12 just for a quick second i wanted i want you to see something because another way of saying they have little strength is to say that they're kind of weak in and of themselves okay go to second corinthians 12 with me if you will Um, And let's see, which verse do we want? Second Corinthians 12, I think we want verse, uh, well, seven to 10. Let's read that. Paul's talking. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. Paul gets to go to heaven, gets a trip to heaven. By the way, stay tuned in chapter four, John gets a round trip ticket to heaven but well, we're not there yet. To keep me from being conceited, be, becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, 2 Corinthians twelve seven, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, some physical ailment, probably. What was it? We don't know. There's a million theories. I'm not going to go into it, but he's got some constant pain or physical ailment. It's keeping him humble. It's keeping him weak. It's keeping him Dependent on God to torment me, that the verse ends. Verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord, he prays to God, to take it away from me. Verse nine, here it comes. But he, that's God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Strange, right? Not really. The weak person knows. I don't have the strength. I have to get the strength from somewhere else, from God. God can use someone like that, not only because of the dependence, but also because of the humility. Do you see that? Therefore, I'm still in the same verse. Uh, I think it's verse nine. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. The people that Christ's power rests on the most are the ones that know that they're weak. Remember Matthew 5 blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones that know they're bankrupt spiritually. I got nothing. I I don't, you don't owe me anything. I can't earn my salvation. I need a savior. Let's keep reading. That is why verse 10, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Here it comes. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. You say, well, that makes no sense. No, he means when I'm weak physically, when I'm weak mentally, when I'm weak immune system-wise, when I'm weak because of pain and persecution and worry, that's when I realize my need. And God can fill that kind of a vessel a lot more than if you picture a vessel, a big bottle that's so full of himself or herself, I'm so strong in myself. God can barely pour anything in there. We need to be empty vessels that he can fill with his spirit, his power, his strength, if you will. Okay. I'm on the wrong page of notes. Go back to Revelation again. We're doing a lot of page turning, but it's keeping you awake. Are you still awake? Say amen. Good one. You people on Zoom doing okay? All right. Stay awake. I see that. Thumbs up. Beautiful. Okay. Oh, let's see. Okay. Now it's going to get a little strange. I want to warn you. Verse nine. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Who are these people? They're Jews. They're practicing Judaism. They're in Turkey. They're meeting in the synagogue they are it's a you know it's in the 90s um 95 ish a.d okay why does that matter joe because in 70 a.d the jews the religion through which christianity is born he's the jewish messiah the jews who had rejected jesus listen lost judaism what do you mean they still they're still there practicing no they're not what do you mean To have Judaism in its fullness, you need a temple. The temple was torn down, burned up, gone. You need a high priest. They haven't had a high priest in 25 years. You have to have sacrifices for lambs. They haven't sacrificed a lamb now in 2,000 years. Then it'd been 25 years. Judaism, it was no longer, it couldn't be what it was. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ fulfills all those things. He is our temple, the place where we meet, the place where we pray. He is the lamb of God that sacrificed. He is the holy high priest who sacrifices himself. We don't have an altar anymore because the cross, the wooden cross was the altar. Christianity fulfills Judaism. As a result... There was great friction between the Jews and the Christians. The Christian, the Jews were the main people that persecuted Christians, for at least for the early part of the church. Unfortunately, anti Semitism rose, and the Christians also sometimes, and they shouldn't, persecuted Jews. So there was always a clash because the Christians are running around saying, We worship your Messiah and you people. Pew, you missed it. You missed him. He was the one born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. It's all in the old Testament. Look it up. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. He's the one. So the Jews persecuted the Christians. He's presenting them here in what seems a little on the harsh side. Would you agree? He could have just said those people in the synagogue Okay, we know who he's talking about. He calls it the synagogue of what? Satan. The weird thing is, they're worshiping who they think is the real God. But Jesus says, I am the only way to get to him. I am the fulfillment of the whole Judaism, the whole Old Testament. And they're saying, no. As a result, they're on the outside. The good news is, Romans 9, 10, and 11 talks all about the Jews. They will come back and find Jesus. There are already many Christian Jews, Jews who have found Jesus Christ and realize, oh, my, he's the one, the Messiah. But they are persecuting these Christians in Philadelphia. So Jesus says, I'm going to make them that are of the synagogue of Satan. It says he says they claim to be Jews, though they're not. wait, are they not Jewish? No, they're Jewish. Remember, you can be Jewish religiously. You can be Jewish. um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? From a nationality standpoint, uh, I have a good friend who lives in Ecuador. He's Jewish, full-blown Jewish. He never reads the Old Testament. He never goes to synagogue. He's as Jewish as any of us are. He just doesn't care about religion. Secular Jew, you might say. These people think they're worshiping the true God, but the true God came in flesh, died on a cross for them, and they said, get him out of here. Crucify him, remember? So that's why they're the synagogue of Satan, and they're persecuting Jesus's kids. You ever have anybody hurt your kids? You don't like that, do you? God doesn't like that either. So they say they're Jews, but they're not. They're liars. Um, Let's talk about that for a second, because there's a verse I want you to see. Um, Romans 9, Paul says, not all who are born of Israel are Israel. Remember, Israel goes back to Abraham, who was the first Jew. He started Judaism, basically. And God said about Abraham, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So true Jews are those who believe God truly and act upon it. Those people who truly believe God, and remember God came down in a human body and spoke and they didn't believe it. So for that reason, they're not sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham. Uh, Let's see. So he's gonna make them who claim they're Jews, they're liars. And This is an interesting thing. I'll make them, end of verse nine, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Don't misunderstand the Jews. He's saying in the future, they're going to come and fall down at your feet. You Christians in Philadelphia, and they will know that I, Jesus, have lo- and God have loved them. What does that mean? Fall down at their feet. Generally in the Bible, but not here, fall down at the feet means Worship. Okay, there's a word for that in Greek, proskuneo, it means to prostrate oneself, bowing down. He doesn't mean the Jews are going to come and worship you Christians. That's not what he means. Worship God and God only, right? And Christ. Okay, so what does it mean? It means that the Jews, eventually, Christ is going to turn them to where they will one day realize, oh, he's the Messiah. We missed, they were right. These heathen, we thought, Christians were right. And they'll come um, sort of symbolically bowing down saying, you were right, we were wrong in humility. And we worship the same God. During the tribulation, later in this book, chapter um, 7, I think it is, but it's elsewhere, God saves 144,000 Jewish people in the world. How do you know they're Jews? Because it's 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin and 12,000 from the tribe of, it's Jews. Those Jews evangelize the world in the last days in a way nobody's ever done, amazingly. There are already Jews, as I said, finding Jesus Christ. You can look up Jews for Jesus, Messianic Jews, there's all kinds of websites. It's a wonderful thing. I like to call them completed Jews, right? They still believe every word of the Old Testament, but they see in it, the New Testament reveals and completes the Old Testament, if you will. So he's gonna make them come and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Because Jews looked at Christians as the way we would look at um, Jim Jones and his cult in Guyana. Do you remember that? some dangerous cult. We need to stamp out these Christians, the Jews thought. It turns out in the last days, they're going to figure it out. Um, So God is vindicating them and showing the Jews, he's going to show them that I have loved you. Now there's a promise in verse 10. I think this verse has been misunderstood a lot. We're going to look at it from both sides of the coin. Verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, okay, because they have obeyed God, and what did they do? They endured. What were they enduring? Just regular life? No. Great trouble, great persecution because they were Christians. The temptation when someone's bugging you and persecuting you for being a Christian, the temptation is to say, I'm just going to shut up about Jesus, And then the persecution will go away. Problem solved. Not with God. That greatly displeases God. What pleases him is in the midst of persecution to be even more vocal about your Christianity and not let them shut you up because that's what they want to do. You will notice there are two churches that receive great grades here. You know what they have in common? Philadelphia and I think it's Sardis Uh, or Smyrna. I'm sorry. They're both under tremendous persecution. So instead of seeing that as what a bummer now we're starting to get really persecuted, look at it as this is an opportunity to remain true and endure to the end. Let's keep rolling. Verse 10, since you've done that, you've kept my command to endure. Notice, not violently, not angrily, patiently. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Because they've done that, Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Many, many Christians today read this verse and say, I know what that is. That's the rapture. Before the tribulation of seven years of great trouble on the earth comes, Jesus is promising that he will Take us out. I will keep you from the hour of trial or temptation or testing, same word, that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Inhabitants of the earth, by the way, when that's used in Revelation, it means unbelievers. Who's being tested during the tribulation? Unbelievers, both Jews and Gentiles. Okay. So that is today the majority opinion for verse seven this is a rapture passage. By that they mean, because they've been faithful, he's going to keep them from, notice the very hour itself of trial, that's going to come on the whole world. Okay, so with that in mind, let's look at the other side of what this might mean. It might mean that, believe me, those of you that know my view on the Tribulation and the rapture. I believe the rapture is the second coming. There's only one second coming. We're raptured at the end. Yes, we go through the whole tribulation. Yes, we might be persecuted. Yes, we might be martyred, killed. We might. We go through the whole thing. That's what I believe. I used to believe the other way. This is the one doctrine I hope I'm wrong about. I really do. Okay. Um, So, let's look at some other sides of this. All right. Isaiah 45, 14. Um, By the way, God promised the the Jews, this is interesting. God promised the Jews that eventually, this is Old Testament, that eventually Gentiles, that's non-Jews, would honor them and acknowledge their God. And you know what? It happened the last 2,000 years All Christians, if they know their Bible, realize we're worshiping the Jewish God. We're saying you Jews had the right God. You just didn't recognize the Messiah. Now the tables are turned and the Jews are in the role of the unbelievers. And they're going to come and admit to us when they come to faith in Jesus. Okay. So let's look at verse 10. Since you've kept that command and endured patiently, I'll keep you. Okay. The first thing is from. I'll keep you from it. I'll take you out. It's a rapture. Is it? The word from is two letters in Greek. Ek, E, K. Tereso, ek, keep, from. The problem is ek, E, K in Hebrew can mean in, during. It can mean like 10 different things. Um It can mean, let's see, out of, it can mean by, it can mean with, in, or through. So already we got a little problem because what if it means I'll keep you in the hour of trial? In other words, you're going to be in this great tribulation that's come upon the whole earth. I'll keep you safe in it. Possible. What'd you say, Jeff? Oh, I praise, amen to that brother okay next thing wait a minute what's the context what do you mean you got to always ask yourself what does this mean oh well who's it written to it's written to the church in philadelphia in the first century so if this is a pre-trib rapture verse then they're going to be raptured oh wait they're all dead they died a couple thousand years ago these people right so what does it mean what is he talking about He might be talking about, first of all, in the whole world in the Bible is sometimes hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. It means in that whole area where you are, some major persecution is going to come. Don't worry, because you've kept my word and endured patiently. I'm going to keep you safe and sound. It could mean that. Okay. So, tereso ek, to keep you in, to keep you through, to keep you from. Only occurs, go to John 17 now, only occurs one other time in the whole Bible. Now, when I see that, I always go, oh, then this is going to really reveal something. Or maybe not. Let's see. Go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John 17 is the high priestly prayer. Jesus, we get to eavesdrop on Jesus praying to God. The actual words he said. It's an amazing chapter. Read it later, not now. But right now, John chapter 17, I'll let you turn there. And we want verse, uh, let's pick it up around verse eight. For I gave them the words, Jesus talking to the father, I gave them That's Christians, disciples, the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Verse nine I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for these you have given me, for they are yours. That would include you and me, by the way. Verse 10 All I have is yours. It's Jesus talking to God. And all you have is mine, and all glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer. Don't miss this. I, Jesus, will remain in the, he's about to die, go to a grave, rise from the dead, and send to heaven, right? I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, believers. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. That's Judas. Um, let's see. Okay. Um, skip down to verse 14. I've given them your word. The world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Jesus, verse 15. Listen, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. In that sentence is tereso Those same two words. What's the context? My prayer isn't that you take them out, but that you protect them from the evil one. Remember that the, tri- the great tribulation, Matthew 24, Jesus calls it the great tribulation. Two things are happening that are scary, okay? One is, God is pouring out wrath on sinful humanity, the unsaved. Do you think God is a good enough aim that he can hit the unbelievers and miss you? Yes. In other words, I believe that he will judge the unsaved world, and you will be right in the midst of it and will be totally safe. I'll come back to that. But at the same time that God's pouring out wrath on the earth, Satan, in the form of a human being called the Antichrist, the one world leader, is pouring out wrath on you, Christians, believers, Jews that became Christians or Gentiles that are Christians. Are we going to be protected from God's wrath? Absolutely. Why would he be spanking us? We're saved. Are we going to be protected totally from the Antichrist? Not necessarily. How do you know that? Chapter 13, if anyone's destined to captivity, to pack captivity, he goes, if anyone's destined to die by the sword, he's talking about Antichrist killing Christians, it can happen. Listen, throughout human history, Christians have been martyred and died for their faith. Why would we think we're the only generation, if we're here at the end, that gets a pass? I hope I'm wrong. But here's something to think about. What's the pattern? How does God usually do it? How does he usually do what? When God's pouring down wrath on some people in the Old Testament, let's just say, how does he do it? Watch Old Testament, number one, the Jews are, well, let's go back further. Noah, okay? The world is an unbelievably sinful place. God's had it. I'm going to flood the earth. Noah builds an ark, eight people get on it, him and his family, and a bunch of animals. Okay. Must not have smelled real good on there. They get on the, ar- the ark, right? And he starts flooding the earth and he takes Noah and those other seven people out of the whole earth. No, they're right there in the midst of the rain and the tremendous flooding and they're safe in the ark. God judges unbelievers with believers right there safe as can be well that's one example joe big deal okay you want another one i thank you for asking the jews are in egypt god has been telling pharaoh through moses let my people go pharaoh says get lost there's all these plagues right and there's great harm being done the wrath of god is coming down on egypt and god takes all the jews out no they're right there in the midst of it and the plagues aren't harming them at all the last plague the worst one of all the death of the firstborn of every household imagine that your oldest son or daughter and the jews are safe where next door there's egyptians screaming and yelling because their firstborn's dead unbelievers judged believers kept safe right in the midst of the judgment okay that's two examples that's pretty good but the jews are leaving egypt now they're all the way to the red sea they're trapped there's nowhere to go got a little problem because here comes the egyptian army right and their guns are loaded going to be a big conflict god opens up the red sea and the jews march across dry land safely where are they again Still in Egypt, yes, and the bo- the bed of the Red Sea, the bottom, right? That's where they are. Yes. soon as they get across, here comes the Egyptian army. and guess what? That same area gets flooded. The Jews are safe. the enemies of God are destroyed while they're right there. No taking them off the earth. It's not his pattern. Let's take our two-minute break now that I've made everybody angry. Don't go away. we'll be right back. I'm just going to turn my screen off. I'll see you in a few minutes. All right. We're back in Revelation 3. And um, let's see. Uh, By the way, somebody here has the New Living Translation, which is not a paraphrase. It is a translation. And her version has the word protect, not keep out of or from, but protect. That's interesting. Okay. Um, You've kept my... command to endure patiently. I'll keep you from or in or through the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. So that might be a local thing there. This might be, some people think that the seven churches, listen, are seven uh, successive periods of time, but isn't the end of the world the tribulation? Yes. So shouldn't the last church be the one that hears this, Laodicea? Well, They're kind of sinful, so they don't, for whatever reason. Um, Let's see. We already talked about that. By the way, Jesus said, I'm with you until the rapture. I'm with you till the end of the age. The end. Five times in the sixth chapter of John, Jesus says about everyone that believes Five times, I will raise him up seven years before the last day. No. What does he say? I will raise him up on the last day. Could there be a day after the last day? Let's say he raises us up in the rapture seven years before the tribulation starts. There can't be a day after that, then. It has to be at the second coming, I think. I could be wrong. Um, the church, by the way, believed that the church would go through the tribulation and the rapture is the second coming for about 1800 years of Christian history. There's very, very, very few uh, church fathers that believed otherwise. One last thing. Verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of or in the hour of trial. Okay. Now, that's Pierasmos in Greek. It means trial, testing, or temptation. What's your point, Joe? Philipsis in, he, in Greek, sorry, means tribulation. Doesn't use that word. Jesus does in Matthew 24. Here, it's an hour of testing or trial uh, in some way. Okay, uh, we already heard that. By the way, the other six churches, well, the other five that are Christian, why don't they get this promise? another question. Okay. So I told you about Noah. I told you about the Jews in Egypt. I told you about the Red Sea. Um, I won't bother. If you get the notes, you'll see there's a long list of really well-known Christian uh, church fathers and historians. Um, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, Tim Keller, Walter Martin, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, D. James Kennedy, uh, Walt, William Tyndale, Isaac Newton, Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield. who are these people? They all believe the church goes through the tribulation and the rapture is the second coming. It's not just the crazy guy on Tuesday night. There's a few others of us. In any case, I hope I'm wrong. Did you hear me? I really do hope I'm wrong. Back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. Okay. Um, verse 11. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, that doesn't mean someone else is going to steal it. It means someone else, if he takes your crown, he will give it to some other believer. What does it mean to hold on to what you have? Hold on to the faith you have, the true gospel that you have. Keep reminding yourself of it so that when you hear a fake gospel, it's so fresh in your mind, the real one, you're not fooled by the counterfeit. Do you follow? Very important that we remind ourselves of the gospel. You do that in Bible study. You do that by going to church. You do that by reading the word daily, praying, studying. Very, very important. So he's saying, prepare for his coming. Now, The word soon, I'm coming soon, can mean when I come, I'm coming very quickly. Matthew 24 says it's like a lightning flash from the east to the west. The coming of the Son of Man will not be gradual, won't be slow. It'll be very quick. Wanted to mention that. Um, Let's see. Yeah, we talked about that. Hold tight to what you have. Don't depart from it. That door of evangelism that they have, the door that's open, the faith they have, the word, Hold on to it. Um, This is a crown of victory. He's saying, play to the end of the game. Play to the buzzer if you're into sports. um, So that no one will take your crown. Verse 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Stop right there. This is a city with tons of those big, huge pillars. When there were earthquakes, remember the earthquakes, Philadelphia? Often buildings were gone. They just collapsed and guess what was left? The pillars. That's all, right? You can see ruins some places where there's no more roof, no more walls, pillar, pillar, pillar. He's saying that kind of staying power, that kind of strength I'm offering you to in the midst of craziness going on around you, you can be that stoic and strong and steadfast and uh, immovable, if you will. So, The pillars of what remain, remain standing, even though everything around you is crumbling. Listen, in our country, this could happen. What do you mean, earthquakes? Always, but that's not what I mean. I mean, we may live to see America really change in a big way and be greatly reduced, if you will, in power, in um, financial security, in world dominance, in a hundred different ways. I could be wrong. I'm just warning you. We can be those pillars that remain strong because people around us are going to be crumbling, freaking out. And we can say, we have something to stand on that's solid as a rock, Jesus Christ. Um, Okay. Let's keep reading. We're back in verse 12. We didn't finish the verse. To the one who's victorious, who overcomes, I'm going to make him a pillar. You're going to be just like a pillar. Where? It's not in a city. It's not. It's in a temple, the temple of God. Beautiful. You are the building. Listen to this. Never again will they leave it. What does that mean? Remember I told you that city there was constantly shaking. Everybody's running out of town and they're all coming back. He says in heaven, in the eternal state, you can relax. There's no earthquakes. You're not going to go out and come in and go out and come in. You're never going to leave it. Never will they leave it. I will write on them, Jesus talking, to who? The ones who are victorious. That's you and me as well. I'll write on them the name of my God. That's God the Father. In the Old Testament, the proper name is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, the pronunciation, by the way, is a guess. Why do you say that? Because the Jews only wrote the consonants. So they write that name down for God as Y H W H. It's a proper name, like I'm Joe and he's Tom and he's Jesse. It, it was God's name, Yahweh. It's from the phrase I am that I am in Exodus 3. Okay. The Jews also had a word, word called L E L. Okay. In Spanish, it means the, right? In Hebrew, L means God. Just just the generic name for God. Beth El, house of God, for example. Then they had a word that was plural, God, Elohim. Okay. Want to hear a weird thing? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In English, it's just God. In Hebrew, it's not L-E-L, E-L, it's Elohim. You mean God's? I mean, God, plurality, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're about to hear Jesus himself is the creator. Let's keep rolling. So he's going to do some writing, Jesus will. They'll never have to leave it again. I'll write on them the name of my God. So he's going to write on us the name of Yahweh, the name of God. What does that mean? A tattoo? No, listen. When you were a little kid and you brought your lunchbox to school or your jacket or your little notebook the teacher would tell you what write your name in there so we know that it's yours possession if yahweh if that name is on me that means possession of yahweh property of yahweh don't touch the rest of the world i love that so he's going to write on us god's name what else the name of the city of my God, that's the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. that happens at the end of the book of Revelation. He's going to write that name. Why? Because that's your future home and mine. We'll see the travel brochure when we get to chapter 21. Um, and he's going to write something else. I will write on them my new name. Whose new name? Jesus's. What is it? We're not told. Kind of a mystery, right? It might just be that he's God of the universe because he is and people don't usually call him that. In any case, he is writing on us to show his authority over us but also his ownership of us completely. And then there's that phrase again verse 13, whoever has ears let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. What does that mean? It means there's something there for you and me, for your church and mine, wherever we are. Interesting book. Nothing wrong is said about you notice he doesn't say i have this against you like he has in the other letters you better correct this quickly or else there's none of that this little church if you drove by it in those days in your little horse-drawn cart or donkey-drawn cart you would think well there's an insignificant little church but inside was a bunch of faithful people who refused to compromise with the world who refused to bow to the pressure and the persecution they were feeling from the jews who just said we're going to remain faithful to what we know is true the gospel. And God greatly commends them. May we all be more like Philadelphia than Laodicea. Um, That's going to be the next one that we're about to do. By the way, in that era, pagans who would worship at a certain temple would sometimes write the name of that particular God on their forehead to show I'm owned by that pagan God. God's saying, I do the same thing. Those are my people. Verse 14, now we come to the worst of the churches. This church gets grade-wise an F, failing, dead, incomplete, zero on the test. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, verse 14, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This letter I'm going to take one verse at a time and not read the whole thing just with your permission. Okay, Laodicea, extremely wealthy city. Think Beverly Hills think New York City think you know uh I don't know, Belmont or uh Woodside up in the Bay Area, um Malibu in Southern California. Uh, so very large Jewish population there. A another center for worship of Caesar, of the Caesar. Also, they have the same God we heard a couple letters ago. Do you remember the, the gross one? As, Asclepios, which was the snake God, where you go to the temple at night and lay down there on the cold floor, hoping you'll get healed by this snake God. And they had thousands of snakes in there, not that would not poisonous. And they if they crawled over you, you might feel like, oh, there's the touch from the God. Give me a break. Anyway, they had a medical school there and a temple to that snake God. Uh, Let's see. The city was so wealthy. They had a huge earthquake that leveled the whole city. And the city was so wealthy. When Rome sent word, we have some money to help you rebuild. The city people said, no, thanks. We, We got this. We got enough money. And they rebuilt themselves. So they were very cocky, very self-confident. It was all about money. And they, you know, this is the prideful city. Um, They exported goods to the world. They prided themselves on three things. And you're going to see in Jesus's letter, he mentions all three because he knows them. Number one, money tremendous wealth by the way when you have that much money you can't help but think who needs god i have it all but as tim keller says if what gives you that peace is something you can lose then there's no peace in it because you can lose your money it could be stolen it could be end up worth it could end up being worth nothing right currency devaluation so Number one, wealth. Number two, textile industry. Famous for their black cloth that they made there. Third thing, uh, they had developed there an eye medicine, a salve, S-A-L-V-E, that could be put on eyes that would heal all kinds of things that were wrong with eyes. Eye salve, textile industry, black cloth, and big bucks. Let's see, one other thing you need to know. Uh, There were three cities in this little area. Colossae, which is the Colossian church, they had tremendous wells of cold, clear, awesome water, okay? Hierapolis, the other town in the neighborhood nearby, had hot springs, hot water, cold water, hot water. This city, the one thing they didn't have going for them, not a good water supply. So they built six miles of underground aqueducts to bring the water from Hierapolis, hot, and Colossae, cold. By the time it reached there, it was gross. Not only was it lukewarm, it was dirty. There were all these other deposits in it. They didn't have good water. Alhambra had not been invented yet. Let's keep rolling. Um, I got to give you more background. I think that's just about it. Um, Yeah. Paul mentions the, the church in Laodicea in Colossians 2 and 4, both times very unfavorably. Paul wrote a letter, you may be surprised to learn, he mentions it in Colossians. He wrote a letter to the Laodiceans. You mean like Corinthians and Thessalonians? And yes, where is it? Lost. We don't have it. Did God mess up? No, he didn't want us. For some reason, we didn't get it. We've got this letter. We know enough about Laodicea from what Jesus says. Um, so let's look at what he says. These are the words of the amen. Amen means so be it, or it is true. Um, definitely a, a Old Testament word, but it's also a New Testament. It is done, so be it, that kind of thing. Second Corinthians 1 says all the promises of God are in Jesus, yes, and in him, amen. All the promises, all that Old Testament stuff, fulfilled in one man, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. I'm still in verse 14. Faithful and true witness. Meaning what? He's Everything he says is absolutely true. He's about to lower the boom on them in judgment. And he wants them to know, I have the credentials. I'm the amen of everything God ever said. It's all amen in me. I am the faithful and true witness. Nothing I'm saying is false charges against you. And lastly, the ruler of God's creation, Verse end of verse 14. Does anybody have uh, the the beginner of creation or beginning of the creation? Yes. Okay. It's RK. It means doesn't mean the first creation. It means the one that started it all. Another way to say it is the Alpha and the Omega, the first uh, Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Same kind of thing. Jesus Christ, John 1, everything that was created was created by him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um the ruler and he's the ruler of the firstborn over the preeminent one over all of God's creation. He's giving his credentials so they know this is the real deal. This isn't just not, well, that's your opinion. He's the one, right? Um, let's see, I'm still reading. So who he is, is very important. Do you remember Jesus says to the apostles, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say you're John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or one of the other prophets. And then he says, in Greek, it reads like this, double but what about you? Who do you emphatic say that I am? Do you remember? And Peter, nobody says anything. And Peter says, I say you're the Christ, meaning Messiah, the son of the living God. Remember that? And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but it came from above. My father revealed it to you. Anyway, who he is is very important. We already talked about Alpha and Omega. Uh, Colossians 1, I won't go there, but it talks about him being the creator of everything. Same thing with Hebrews 1, um, the initiator of creation. Okay, there it is again, verse 15. I know your deeds. You get the feeling he knows? You think you got God fooled? I got J- Jesus doesn't know. He knows right you can't hide from him even your motives you might do nice things and have a bad motive he knows it's a little scary isn't it i know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold i wish you were one or the other isn't that interesting you're lukewarm you're not hot or cold what do you mean by hot and cold I don't mean temperature-wise, some have fevers, some are under 98.6. It means this, hot means zealous on fire for God, so excited that they're saved, so thankful, so into the word, so into wanting to please God, the one they love, so into obedience, so into spreading the gospel, so into studying the word. They just can't get enough of it, hot. Cold, just the opposite. I, I don't really... I'm not into the Bible, God thing. Just not my thing. You people, if that works for you, that's great. I I don't believe anything. I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic. I'm just not sure. Listen, you might say, of course he wishes they were hot. Why cold? Here's why. Because if you're cold like that, god built into every single person in his in ecclesiastes it said god it says god has placed in built into the heart of man et- placed eternity in their hearts meaning what Blaise pascal the famous philosopher who was a christian and a mathematician he's the one that said inside of every human being listen if you remember nothing else remember this inside of every human being there's a vacuum a hole I don't mean a physical hole, I mean in their soul or their spirit. What do you mean? I mean there's a god shaped. That's what he called it, vacuum. Everybody's empty. Yes, family is very satisfying and my job, I make a lot of money, or I ran for office and I'm now the governor of California. Good Lord, help us. Anyway, I'm the governor of California, or I'm the president. I've had great success. I've got notoriety for my art. I have PhDs behind my name. Why am I so empty? There's a God-shaped vacuum, and the only thing that will fill it is God. God and people stuff money in there and sex and power and sin and drugs and alcohol and nothing ever works folks nothing if you're not done stuffing stuff in there let me save you some time nothing works nothing except god jesus christ okay so what's the point of all this um if they're cold, they're still empty. And there might be a chance that they will hear the gospel and realize this is exactly what I need. I know that I'm a sinner. I, but lukewarm means I've got just enough Jesus to make me miserable in the world. But I also got just enough of the world to make me not that interested in going to the deep end of the pool of Jesus. I'm already okay religiously i'm lukewarm the jews were lukewarm by the time jesus shows up they're going through the motions and all the prayers and the sacrifice and they don't mean it and they're not obeying they're not really into it those people that think that they're rich spiritually are the hardest ones to reach oh i've already got it that all worked out the one that's got nothing When you say to him, what happens when you die? If they're honest, they go home at night and go, yeah, what does happen? But if I think I've got my own little religious thing worked out, I've got enough of Jesus. I'm lukewarm. You go to church. No, now and then, but not really. You read your Bible. No, no. But I've got it handled. Those people are not poor in spirit. The ones that are poor in spirit are the ones that have thrown up their hands going, I need a savior. Matthew 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spends three chapters showing the Jews, you can't keep the law. You think you're going to keep all these commandments and get to heaven? He goes to extremes to show them. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And they're all going, yeah, I'm good on that one. I haven't murdered anybody. And then he says, but I tell you the truth. If you've even said you fool or said something mean to somebody, you're just as guilty. Oh boy, you shall not commit adultery. I'm good on that one, are you? Yeah me too. We're good on adultery. going, keep going Jesus. And Jesus says, but I tell you, if you've even looked at a person or a picture of a woman or a man and lusted after it, you're just as guilty. What's he doing being picky? No, he's trying to show them. you can't fulfill the law perfectly. Then he really lowers the boom. I think it's chapter five where he says, be as good as you can be just do your best no he doesn't say that you know what he says be perfect now wait a minute nobody can be perfect that's just ridiculous exactly he's trying to get them to see oh wait we are the spiritually bankrupt ones okay well what do we do you're out of money you need me spiritually you're broke That's why they're blessed. The spiritually blessed are the ones blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones that know that they're poor, they need a savior. The ones that think they're wealthy, and these people do, who needs Jesus? We got everything. We rebuilt our own city. That's the kind of money we have. Let's keep rolling. I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So verse 16, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, you make me sick what he says. I'm about to spew you or spit you out of my mouth. Now, in Greek, that's more than this. It's vomit. That's what it means. You make me so sick, I'm I'm just going to heave it all up. That's how sick you make me. That lukewarm water, same thing. He's using that analogy. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, verse 17, I am rich. I have acquired or earned wealth i don't need anything do you see that self-satisfied confident self-confident attitude prideful who needs jesus when you got a hundred million dollars you right you should donate it to the church too okay i'm about to spit you out of my mouth you say i'm rich there's their thing they think they're rich by the way, listen, not only financially, they think they're rich spiritually. If you drove by the Philadelphia Church, you'd go, look at that place, Run down. it's not that many not that many people go there and yet that's the one Jesus goes. You guys are so awesome. You go to the Laodicean church and it's like the Crystal Cathedral, if you know what that is in Southern California. There's gold, it's a big church, it's vibrant, it's happening, there's programs. And there's actually spiritual death going on in there. Astounding because they're so into, we got enough of Jesus. We're rich. We don't need anything. Not poor in spirit, not Matthew 5. But you do not realize that you are, are you ready? Ask yourself, because some scholars have asked this question and pretty much everybody's come to the same decision. Here's the question. Are these people saved? Maybe they're just, they got some problems, but they're saved. Listen, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. Remember garments last week? A a picture of one's spiritual condition. Clothed in white robes, believers. Naked? Sinners, like Adam and Eve, remember? Pitiful. You think you're rich, but you're poor. And they're going, oh, no, no, look at my bank account. And He's going, no, in heaven, you're broke. Folks, the problem is not the poorness, poverty, sorry, not the nakedness. The biggest problem is the blindness because they don't know. It's one thing to know I'm broke, I've got no clothes, and I'm blind. I need help. Can someone help me? Poor in spirit. But imagine a blind beggar who's wretched, gross, naked, poor, blind. And thinks, I'm on top of the world. They they don't know that they're blind. It's a pathetic deception that has occurred. This is what Satan does. You don't need church to be around those people. Some of those people are hypocrites. You're okay. You're not an ax murderer. You're not a rapist. You don't need church. Just do the best you can. Wrong. Eh. My granddaughter loves when I go, eh. okay. Where were we? Pitiful, poor, blind, naked. That's the definition of an unsaved person. Now, before we get all conceited and laugh at them, guess what you were before you were saved? Ditto. Wretched, poor, blind, naked. Spiritually speaking. Right? Um, Hold on. I've got notes here I want to read. And I... um... This is not Jesus's church. This is their church. They're lukewarm. Um, this is the church that won't offend anyone. Right? We don't want to ruffle any feathers. There is a church, those of you that live in Madera County, where we are right now, there is a church in coarse gold that the pastor has recently said that he will not teach, ever preach, ever. On hell, homosexuality, LGBTQ. And then these words came out of his mouth. This is all in the last month or two. I don't want to offend anybody. Get away from that church. Believe me, if it's in the Bible, it's not up to you or me to go, let's erase that whole section right there and not talk about it. I hope sometimes that I offend you. Not in a bad way, but enough to make us look at our own lives. The Bible offends me all the time in a good way, sets me straight. Just like if I'm going to go to a wedding and I get all dressed and get the tie on, and, which I hate wearing ties, and the shirt and the sport coat and the vest and the pants and the shoes, the hard shoes that are uncomfortable. And then I look in the mirror. I don't want an inaccurate picture. If there's a huge mustard stain here, I'd rather see it and go, oh, look at that. The Bible offends to show us the mustard stains. Shall we move on? I'm getting hungry. All right. Where where were we? I counsel you to buy from me. I want you to notice the irony here. I got to hurry. Gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see wait a minute wasn't that the three areas they were confident in yes he's saying the very things you're the most confident in you're horrible at but here's the thing he says they're broke right so if you're broke isn't it a little weird to say buy from me what? How? I'm broke. The moment you realize you're broke and you can't buy from him anything, you're hoping for a, wait for it, free gift. Act now. It's free. The gospel is free. Um, We'll get to this more next week because we're almost out of time. I'm trying to rush. So he's saying, you got to buy this stuff. You're needy and you don't know it. Buy from who? Me. He says, I'm the only place you can get these things. What is it? Gold refined in the fire. Wait, you're talking about money? Like gold? No. Old Testament, gold is equated with great faith. Even New Testament, First Peter, I think it is. Great faith. Okay? Buy from me. Get it from me. That's the only place you can get it. So that you can become rich. Not financially. Your bank account numbers go up. So you'll be rich spiritually. It's weird. It's the upside down kingdom. The church down the street, Philadelphia, that looks so poor, those people are billionaires in heaven, okay? Not to their own pride. I'm just saying they've got the true gospel. These people that got the big, huge cathedral and they're wealthy and got the nice black clothes, they're broke. They're wretched, blind, naked. Buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear. Wait, don't they uh, export black clothes? cloth and black clothing? Yes. He's saying white, purity, righteousness that only comes from him because he lived the perfect life, died the death we deserve. So you can cover your shameful nakedness. Imagine walking around naked and they don't know they're naked. God sees. And the last one they're proud of their salve that they put in people's eyes to heal it and he says you need buy some salve too because you're walking around blind, poor, and spiritually dead. Pretty amazing, amazing letter. Um, look quickly at verse, um, I've got so many notes here. Uh, remember John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. A buy from me is emphatic in the Greek, me. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. True wealth comes from him and him only. By the way, that wealth that he's going to give them, spiritual wealth, you can't lose it. No one can steal it. Can't lose it. Those, verse 19, whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. You know what that verse is? Grace. I'm surprised verse 19's in there. Is he rebuking and disciplining them? Yes. Does that mean he loves them? Yes. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. Wait, they're lukewarm. They're a dead church. Exactly. Grace. It's not hopeless. He still loves them. So be earnest and repent. Turn around. I'm going to stop here because verse 20, we may spend a half an hour on. I hope I don't lose anybody next week. That's an amazing verse um, and the one after it. Um, Let's close with prayer. Hope to see you next week. If you can donate to oakhurstevfree.org, the church could use your help. If not, we don't care about that that much. We just love you being here. Those of you on Zoom, those of you that are here, let's close with prayer, shall we? Thank you for this amazing book and these two letters. How opposite can you get, God? We're thankful that you're intimately involved in our churches and in our lives, Father. Help us to see open doors for witness and the open door of fellowship with you, Father. Help us to spread the gospel and love others and walk through those doors in faith. Thank you for uh, all that you've given us. Help us to hold on to it and believe it. Never deny it or you, even if we're persecuted, father, keep us from or through trial and temptation either way, God. And I hope you rapture us early and I hope I'm wrong, Lord, but either way, we trust you and we love you. If we're lukewarm, will you show us father and make us hot, uh, for zeal with zeal for your gospel, father. Thank you for these truths. May they change the way we live. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Thanks for being here. See you next time.